0: broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode, will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Good morning,
1: listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of The Investor Exchange. I'm your host today, Louis van Copenhagen, and joining me in the studio is Brett Dickinson. G'day, mate. And Joel Hewish. Howdy. Hey. All right, rock and roll, gents. Uh, it's uh, It's been a nice period of time for us. Uh, well, for me, what about you guys? Why is that, Louis? Why? Yes. Oh, just nice in general. It's <laughs> springtime, the sun is shining a bit more, the temperatures are nicer. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I was a little annoyed by uh, an industry body uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the FPA, the Financial Planning Association, has embarked on a project to rethink the traditional statement of advice or advice documentation that's presented to clients. Oh, Nice initiative, yeah. good idea, and I'm, I'm definitely supportive of moving to a way to communicate with clients that is not a word-based document. So they're looking for uh, presentation materials, ways to, uh, I don't know, record a conversation as the, uh, as the record of the advice being delivered okay. or maybe a PowerPoint presentation or something uh, a bit more modern, like mm-hmm. a video presentation right. uh, being sufficient for a statement of advice. Okay. Makes sense. So then they said, uh, okay, call out to all financial planners. Can you just uh, submit your digital assets to us? And we'll have a review of them? Uh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> because that's our intellectual yeah. property. That, Sharing our IP. Yeah, exactly. That's what makes us better than anyone else. So, good on you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, support what you're doing, but I'm not actually going to support what you're doing when it means you're going to ride off other people's backs. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Good call. Yep. So, there you go. I'll start uh, my morning rant with a with a kick in the pants for the FBA.
2: <laughs> well, there's a few kicks in the pants going around. Did, did you guys see Josh Frydenberg's outrage the other day as well? Oh, towards the banks. Towards the banks. Yes. Radio, yeah. okay. Yep, yep. So, he's he's actually requested that the ACCC look into the pricing of residential mortgage products. Right, yes. okay. And he's, he's, he's got a quote here. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Is this
3: in alignment with our uh, collusion uh, theory on interest rates? <laughs> how, how everyone only dropped them, yeah, 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 between
2: 13 and 15 basis <laughs> points. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, he said it's it's not just the last three rate cuts where the banks have failed to pass them on. And, of course, he's, he's taking a pot shot here. He says it's actually what's happened previously under the Labor government. He said there were 14 different rate cuts. And only five of them were passed on in full. Right. Okay. I did not yes. realise it was that many, but uh, I won't well, argue with his data.
1: Well, that's going back to the start of the GFC and i recall at that time uh, the the world was basically melting down mm-hmm. and there were some uh, some cuts that i think there was three cuts in a row where one of them was three quarters of a percent in one go mm-hmm. and two of them were one full percent in one go yeah and the fear was was that banks were going to completely liquidate and um and need bailing out so i remember at that time there was not a lot of complaints about banks uh, retaining some of that margin for their own profits mm. because rather have a profitable bank than a bankrupt banked. Mm. Sure. Yep. yeah,
2: A sustainable bank, by the yeah, exactly. I don't know what
3: they can do, really. I mean, at the end of the day, the system is set up so that, you know, these banks can make decisions that are in the best interest of the shareholders and
1: the viability of the business. Yeah, you're
2: yep. not a government organisation. No. can't be dictated yeah. to no. that way. Yeah,
1: that's right. And there was a review of uh, a very similar thing 12 months ago. But I think when you look at the tools that the government actually has to whip the banks into line in passing on the full amount, there's limited things that they can do. So I think... Other this,
3: than you know, foster competition and, and allow those to come in to be able to compete with those banks.
1: Well, well what can they do? They can either um, They can either introduce legislation or they can not introduce legislation. Those are the two big things that the government can actually do, and a liberal government yep. doesn't want to introduce legislation to put more regulation on banks. That's everything that against everything that yeah. they would stand for. Well, and that would also stymie competition as well. Correct. Yes. Uh, so what do they do? Well, they talk about introducing legislation and just talking about it can have an impact on the bank's behaviour or they have an inquiry like this which makes an inconvenience for the banks or the bank executives themselves oh now we have to front up to parliaments and go through this ring and roll maybe next time we will pass on more just so that we don't have to fly to canberra one more time yeah, yeah.
2: or have the a triple c come in and interrogate them for a period of time and they yeah. chew up resource exactly mm-hmm. yep
1: yep, yep. yep. So, uh, so that's, I think that's the kind of thing at play. Mm. And look, that might uh, dovetail nicely into my topic for the day. I think might, it does. I might jump in because us. what I want to talk about is where banking is heading in future. Uh, I, I touched on this in the last episode, and it was just off the cuff. Uh, off um, uh, Brett was talking about interest rates, and and the conversation was turning to refinancing and how that's. Um, Somewhat easy, but also quite difficult. Uh, and I wanted to um, just go over where I see that future is headed because I mentioned OSCO last week, and OSCO is part of a new payments platform. And just to understand this if you look at the, the banking system, it was in the old days, it was all done by cash, and they all kept physical ledgers of people's deposits, debits and credits. Uh, and then it moved to the computer age. And mm-hmm. through the 70s and 80s, the banks built these uh, the, the core of their system to be able to do everything electronically. Yep. And since then, everything has just been bolted on to that core banking system. Now, in the last decades, those core banking systems have been modernised and just completely overhauled. the major banks for the most part but then the method of those systems communicating with each other is still on a payments platform which is decades old Mm -hmm. so what has been built over the last decade is not only each bank having a new core banking system but a new payments platform for those banks to communicate with each other
3: so just for clarity we're talking about in the in the old days or as it currently is BPay is a payments platform. Uh, electronic funds transfer. Yep. Uh, RTGS, real time gross settlements for intraday transfers. Yep. Um, Swift for international transfers.
1: Yep. That's correct.
3: Okay. So what what you're suggesting is that going forward there's a new platform that'll make those previous platforms redundant.
1: Uh, in a way, yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. So the, the new more about it. That's right. So the new payments platform still has redundancy. So no one would have uh, noticed a change each time they'd make a BPAY payment or each time they make an EFT until recently, because now when I make an EFT payment from my internet banking to someone else's bank account, I now get this word, pay by OSCO. Right. And Rightio. OSCO is uh, is a new service using the new payments platform, which means that one bank can talk to another bank and transfer funds in real time. Rightio. Okay. So I make my transfer at 10.47pm um, mm-hmm. and the receiving bank gets it. You log into your internet banking at 10.48pm and you can see it. You can see it within the minute. In fact, you can see it almost instantly. Right,
2: and that's at any hour of the day.
1: That's at any hour of the day. Yeah. And does that's
3: it right. co- does it cost any more to use that platform? Does it, no, it no, doesn't no, cost anything doesn't more. Cost any doesn't anymore. cost anything more. So my question then is, uh, well, where does that leave cryptocurrency where one of the the major yeah. um, benefits being yeah. touted Their through... your value proposition. Yeah, yeah, one of the value propositions was that you would have, you know, direct transfers that would happen within, you know, a matter of hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so now it appears that the only competitive advantage that crypto has is that it's now on a distributed ledger. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interesting thing is, uh, is you got these two payment platforms, right? Where you've got the banks have to verify whether or not a transaction's taken place, and now that yep. looks like it's going to happen in real time. Um, and they will match those transactions and tick off both of them have, you know, seen the debit and the credit as they expected. Uh, with with cryptocurrency, you would have that the verification was uh, was um, encoded, uh, distributed across a whole range of different servers, and verified by all of these different servers. That would mm-hmm. what they essentially do is uh, is mining, um, and then um, and then from that point onwards, that's supposed to be a more secure way of transferring funds.
1: That's right by blockchain by, technology. By
3: blockchain technology and consensus verification. The issue is though that the existing systems that we have in place are pretty damn good. I mean, I can't remember the last time. Uh, you know, I, I've transferred funds from my account to another person's account, and it's gone into somebody else's account that it wasn't intended to. I, yeah. I mean, I can't remember a time that has ever happened. Yep, I can't remember a time really, other than you know the odd little fraud thing that took place with a credit card. Yeah. Um, where money has come out of my account when it shouldn't have. Yep. Or money has come into my account when it shouldn't have. Yeah. So I, I just don't know where that leaves cryptocurrency now in terms of, you know, its utility.
1: Yeah, that's right. And there were, when cryptocurrency is thought about, there's a number of benefits that people talk about. uh, And a lot of those benefits are being stripped away. You're right, Joel. And Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies will really only be left with their one core difference, which is that they're not regulated by any government. And they're not (laughs) <laughs> At the moment, correct. Mm. And there's definitely been steps by all legislation, uh, all legislators in a number of countries to regulate Bitcoin. And as soon as that happens, oh, well... crypto, crypto. Uh, uh, Yeah, crypto in general, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, and as soon as the regulation says, well, okay, we're now going to regulate you, well then, mm. yeah, that's it. Last advantage is, is gone.
3: Mm. So, so I wonder, does that now mean that, you know, I mean, what is the value of uh, Bitcoin now in a world where... You've got... I mean, because really, it costs nothing to do a transfer yeah. from one bank to another. Yep. And you've got... If it's secure... And a highly secure... Yeah, highly secure, metal yeah, metal yeah. A highly yeah. secure uh, method of transfer well, it that, bec- that it works and is, it is adopted by everyone worldwide mm. at trusted. the moment.
2: It, it, it becomes
1: trusted. something which is only valued by conspiracy theorists and people who are anti-government or... The doomsdays. Yeah. Pro-chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Gold yeah. bugs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> so... W- Something to understand about the current banking system is that it is sticky. And what I mean by that is once you've set up with one bank and you've got your system of accounts and your credit card and your loan accounts, it's a huge effort to change. It is. It's a, and there's, uh, there's a number of different things and different reasons why it's hard to change. So firstly, you've got the normal way that you access cash and spending. So you spend on your credit card or you get cash from an ATM. Another thing is paying things by direct debits. So your monthly payments, uh, and these days we've got a lot more subscription services than what we had uh, in days gone by. So if I change from one bank to another, oh geez, I've got like 20 direct debits and I need to go to each one and change each one individually with a new BSB and account number. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is uh, when changing a loan account. So, I have to make a credit application, I have to provide my pay slips, I have to provide my expenses, my ID, and all these things. So, there's a few reasons why it is a sticky system at the moment. But there is uh, this new system called OSCO, and there's another reason why that's going to uh, change things. And then there is things called neobanks. So, very small banks, which are essentially an online platform where all they offer is a bank account and they might offer a loan account. And there is also open banking which is on its way.
3: I don't know what open yeah, banking is, so if you, can, if you could help us there.
1: Open banking is introduced or has been introduced through legislation where it's being forced uh, on banks to make the data available where a customer requests it. So for example, if I say right now, I'm gonna make a credit card application to Westpac. Westpac says, all right, what's your income? What's your expenses? Um, I would like to say to the Commonwealth Bank, well, Commonwealth Bank already has all this data about my name, date of birth, address, transaction details, how much is being spent on direct debits, what my fortnightly or monthly income is, all that is already sitting in that transaction data with another institution. Mm. I would like to tell Commonwealth Bank, can you just hand that data to Westpac? That would be lovely. And at the moment, Commonwealth Bank can say, no bugger off. Open banking is legislation which forces banking to disclose the information that you authorize them to disclose, Right, which means you can share it with other financial institutions, or you can share it with apps or pieces of software. Uh, So I've seen budgeting software that will take a data feed from as many bank accounts and loan accounts as you have with any number of institutions, and it will bring it all into one central place. And through a budgeting software, you can track your income, your expenses, you can categorize. It doesn't matter which account does the spending or which account receives the income. Uh, It's a software that will will collaborate all of that.
2: It's basically zero or myob for an individual. Yeah, yeah, fair
1: enough. Exactly. And the thing, even with zero or myob, uh, there's certain accounts that don't have an API. All oh, right. To get some into zero. Though. Correct. Right. That's right. So yeah. there are still some banks which haven't embraced open banking. Mm. Mm. So look, there's so, so I'm looking at three different factors here. I'm looking at Osco, mm-hmm. I'm looking at these smaller banks and their offerings and the open banking system. Let me come back to Osco because there's a feature of Osco which is also going to revolutionize things. At the moment when I transfer money to you, what's the piece of information I need?
2: My BSB and account number.
1: Correct. Yep. Osco will allow people to move to a different identifier.
2: Oh, that you own regardless of bank account.
1: Correct. Oh, so you, okay. so you can so so actually Osco is like a separate uh, user that I have. So, my OSCO reference could be my email address. Mm, uh, it could number. be a, f- a phone number, correct. Yep. So, uh, hey, Brett, can you, uh, we split the bill on dinner last night, mm. but you owe me 40 bucks. Uh, can you transfer that to me? Oh, what's your OSCO number? It's my phone number, which, is, which you've got in your phone. Mm. Great. Transfer happens. And then OSCO, uh, I've set up my OSCO to direct it into the bank account, which I have, chosen to set up Mm. Mm. does that make sense yeah so now clearing house a a way. it's a bit like a clearing house now it's it's not easy to do yet but this is where the future is heading so what it means is any uh, any pay coming in from employers can go through that reference number instead of a bsb and account number all of my direct debits can go through that for a business they can use their abn as their osco reference so, they can set up things, which means if I change the underlying bank account, I don't have to change all my direct debits. Mm. I don't have to tell my yeah. employer to pay a different pay reference. Mm. All I do is say, well, this bank is giving me no interest. I'm just going to move my account to another bank.
2: Mm. And shift my OSCO to go there.
1: And change my OSCO account setup. Mm. Correct.
2: Is it AUSCO?
1: Is uh, it... OSKO. OSKO. So let's combine that with the thought of these new neobanks, which are small banks, basically a digital platform. Mm. Uh, so think of this. If I wanna open a bank account, uh, let's go to the App Store and let's find a bank through the, uh, through the App Store or mm. Google Play. And then I'll download the app and I'll set up an account that way. This one's paying a great amount of interest. Great, new bank account five-minute application, some kind of verification procedure, uh, similar to what I've seen on other bank, uh, other apps like Airbnb. You have to hold up your driver's license to verify your ID. Yep. So that'll be a similar thing with a banking app.
2: Well, if, if that open banking's in place, it could even be faster because you could just go, okay, new application, Correct. take my data.
1: Well, you might, exactly. You
3: might actually have your data already inputted mm. on, onto, yep. that, onto a platform your and yep. then every time you want to open up a new account, it just yep. it's matches mm. the... So it's a That's pretty, right. maybe just a couple of clicks of the button.
1: So it becomes very easy to change your bank accounts. Yeah. Mm. And because of open banking, it becomes very easy to open a new home loan account and refinance mm. because you don't have to provide your pay slips. I'm already getting a monthly pay amount in my bank account. So right. just, just get the data from the last six months of my bank account and you'll see six monthly payments from my employer. Gotcha. All right, so I don't have to provide physical copies of pay slips anymore. Yeah. Uh, what about your expenses? Well, I don't have to estimate my expenses because you've got all that data. Yeah. Yep. So a loan application <laughs> becomes, um, again, a five minute form mm. and just get the data from this place. Yep. yep, yep. So a home loan application becomes easy. So this is where I see the future of banking and this is where I see it becoming a lot less sticky And this is where I think the big four banks are ripe for disruption Mm -hmm. in the next few years in their core service of providing home loans. And they're trying to compete as well. So NAB has an online-only brand, which is Yep, And a number of other banks have online-only options as well Mm. with either similar branding or completely different branding. But they're open to competition from overseas banks and... Uh, other ideas like peer-to-peer lending. Have you heard of peer-to-peer lending? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole other thing itself where, uh, again, it's cutting out that margin that the banks are using at the moment. Mm. If it's peer-to-peer, well, then the people who keep money in their bank accounts can get a higher interest rate, so higher earnings on their savings, and the people who take a loan will have a lower interest rate because it's a cheaper funding cost because that, Profit margin doesn't have to be as thick in there. Yep. So that's where I see the future of banking going. It's going to become a lot easier for people to make a change. Mm. You do need to be a a little bit tech savvy in the near future to make it happen. But like all of these things, it's becoming easier and easier. So in the next 10 years, in 10 years time, I can only imagine how easy it's going to be. Oh, this bank lost a transaction. Screw them. I'll change bank. Yeah. 10 minutes later, it's done.
2: And with a lot of this digital technology, you probably don't even have to remember much because the phones are becoming more um, adaptive where a fingerprint opens an app or is your security, so you don't have to remember your password anymore yeah. or even facial recognition. So it yeah, could right. be if, if, if your phone is capable enough and the app is integrated well enough, all you need to do is make sure that your fingerprint sensor is working Yeah. And that's all the things you need to do. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's mm. right. Yep. And,
1: and that's why things like uh, FinTech Financial technology companies are a real buzzword at the moment. Mm. Joel, you, you'd be all over this uh, about uh, the potential of fintech companies, and, and it's probably it's probably too early for any major ones to have enough of a track record to uh, to meet our investment mandate. Yeah, um, but it's it's going to be there.
3: Yeah. I, uh, I, I wonder whether or not facial recognition and, uh, you know, the old fingerprint, uh, fingerprint um, does away with the need for signatures going forward. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's we, we, it's more already, secure, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm wondering that one day, you know, our computers are come out with a, a voice... <coughs> sorry, not voice recognition. Well, maybe even voice yeah, recognition. Yeah. Facial recognition, voice recognition, fingerprint um, technology verification. And so if you ever wanted to sign a document, it's just... You know, yep, show yep. us your thumbprint and tick the box, or yeah. you Getting know, very sci-fi. Yeah, like, that's right. But, well, I mean, it makes
2: sense, really. It, it, it does. It does. If this and opens up the new crime where people are chopping off people's fingers. <laughs>
1: well, I've <laughs> always had it. that. <laughs> always <laughs> always <laughs> had that thought, Brad. <laughs> I've always, even when I was a little kid, I thought, oh, it's got to move in that direction. But then, you know, you're going to get thumb theft. Yeah. yeah.
3: Well, maybe you'll end up getting something like a two-factor 2 verification. I need a voice. thumb and an eyeball. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: or, a <laughs> or a voice and an
3: yeah, eyeball, something like that.
2: So voice
1: and hair. a sliver of hair. <laughs>
3: so
2: all those movies are going to come be, become uh, reality. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So yep. To do that, I, I would say that the phone manufacturers might have to have some sort of quality control or certification that their fingerprint sensor meets a certain standard potentially as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, well, mm. you, you, that into because obviously that's they true. work I, from
2: unlocking your phone, mm. but is that a high enough level of security? Look, yeah. I think
3: I think at some point in time this is mm. where we're going to going to head to, I think so. right? Yep. You know, and and DocuSign and these ones that are already yeah. you know signing digital documents with digital signatures. I think the the need for a, a, a print signature will probably disappear yep. Yep. over time, not straight away, but yep. uh, and and DocuSign's going to you know be using other forms of verification rather than you know just ip verification
2: but if you're going to be a sports star or a rock star keep practicing because you're still gonna have to sign merchandise
1: (laughs) (laughs) there you go very good so that's the the topic of mine for the day fascinating we'll be back after this break
0: want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund each day clients of united global capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for sticking with us.
1: I'll kick it over to Brett now, and Brett, you've got some high-level comparisons of investments.
2: Correct, Louis. So this is on the back of a few things that have happened in the last week or two. Uh, In a couple of the previous episodes, we've talked about how the residential um, property market has declined and is recovering, but if you look at it over a a five-year period, it's, it's, it's performed okay. And then it had me thinking, okay, so what do we consider a good rate of return? Any
3: ideas? Okay. what oh, 10% would 10% be... Is a good rate. I think most people would be pretty happy with 10% if they could get that year in, year out.
1: Yeah, yeah. 10%. Uh, and if we're talking property, 10% as a gross return. As, as a total so, return. So it might be as you get return. rent income of 3% and 7% capital growth. Yep. Yeah. And the other old rule of thumb is that Property supposedly doubles in value every ten years. Yes, which would also be in line with that capital growth of seven percent.
2: Yeah, the rule of seventy-two.
1: Yep, and the rule of mm. seventy-two. That's right. Uh, you'll need to Google that if you yeah. don't know what bit is bit too rule complex of 72. to explain now. But bit basically, of, it means how long does maths. it take
2: for something to double in value? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, with that in mind, and I thought, well, a big part of what we're always doing is educating people: is what to expect, what's fair. You know, what are we aiming for? Uh, and I saw a report that came out uh, from Vanguard that actually put together a table uh, on their perspective on diversification and it charts back to 1990. So they've got 30 years. Uh, of data on a number of asset classes and showing the comparing uh, the comparable returns in those asset classes.
1: I doubted your numbers for a second because surely 1990 is not 30 years ago, but God, it God, is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought oh. the same. I thought, no. But,
2: but absolutely, it is here. So, Louis, when I mentioned this to you before we started recording, you were saying, nine asset classes, what are they? So I'll, I'll let you in on the secret now. All right. Nine, um, assi- okay, so nine assets. Okay, let's count residential property is not one of them, uh. um, even though that's... You know my area of expertise to some degree. The uh, the areas that they've they've categorised here. So Australian shares, okay. International shares, That's two. right. They've then done international shares with hedging,
1: right. Okay. Okay. Uh,
2: then just U.S. shares,
1: U.S. only. Australian
2: okay. bonds, yep. International bonds, which they've also only got as hedged. They've got a category for purely cash. And when you so say
3: hedge, that's currency hedged. I would assume that, that, yeah. that, that so is currency. Uh, yeah, no, that is, that yep. is it's yep. currency hedged. Yeah. Uh, okay. So then there's a um, cash is seven.
2: Yep, cash, Australian listed property. So I'm okay. assuming that's the REITs. So that's REITs, the only property yep. asset class we've got for Australia. Mm-hmm. And then international listed property. Okay. So what the table has is it has the returns each year since 1990 for each of these categories and then at the bottom it's got an average, a best and a worst. So these okay. are all
3: financial assets. Uh, yes. That doesn't include other asset classes that might be more physical assets like physical real estate, direct real estate, mm. commodities. Mm. Yeah, no gold, no silver, yeah. Yeah.
2: nothing yep. like okay. that. Okay. Yep. Uh, so in line with what w- the question I asked at the start is what's, what's a good return? The interesting thing is... The average return, uh, so the, the best average return, if we look at it over the 30 years, which asset class do you think had the highest average return over that 30-year period?
3: I'm going to say US shares. Louis? Or Australian
1: shares. Yeah, I would, I'd guess the US shares as yeah. well.
2: And, and you guys are spot on. That, ah. that has the highest average by more than a percent at 11.8 over the long term. 11.8, okay.
1: there you go. Mm. All right. I don't think Australian shares would be far behind, though.
2: Uh, Okay, Australian shares are actually... Well, they're spot on the market that we had. They're spot on Uh, 10%. 10%, Right, okay. the average over that same period of time. The two next best are actually the, the Australian-listed property and the international-listed property. Both came in at 10.6%. Right, okay. Right, right. okay. Uh, and then, okay, so if we go to the other end, I think this would be pretty obvious. Which do you think is the worst-performed average of
1: those classes? Oh, well, it's got to be cash, yeah. I would say, yeah, unless right. any of them has a negative return over 30 years. But a negative return over 30 years is just... Wow. Un- unthinkable for, mm. for for any, for asset, any class. asset class. Yeah, yeah.
2: And you're right. It, so it is the lowest, and considering it, it is over 30 years, it's averaged 5.7. percent. Yeah, okay. which well, still sounds okay, it considering sounds okay. we're talking about rates now that are. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. But,
3: but that takes into account where most of the return would have happened in the first 15 years yeah. at higher right. interest rates. Yeah, so the, exactly.
2: The table I'm looking at has sort of coloured um, blocks on on the outliers in each each mm. category. So. The higher ones, so if we look at cash, 1990, which was the first year, it was at 18.5% on cash. There we (laughs) go. And for that same year, Australian shares were only at 4.1 and international shares were at 1.9. I can't can't
3: imagine, like, if if we had 18% returns on cash, cash. why would you invest in anything else? Of course you no. Well, I mean... Not a chance. uh, but, But it's interesting, though, that even during that time, stock markets did pretty well during that period of time. Yeah. Cash would have been a pretty good... I do have an answer for you. Why would
2: you invest anywhere else? Well, at the same time, (laughs) Australian bonds. No, Australian (laughs) bonds. Bonds, yeah. Yeah. 17.8 for 1990. So you go, okay, well, cash is still better at 18.5. But in 1991 and 1992, Australian bonds achieved 22.4 and 22% returns. Okay. Yeah, so I'll be in bonds for those. Yeah, you know? I'll, I'll yeah. believe it because the 1987
1: and 1989 crashes really crashed the bond markets as well and it's the recovery from those which would have taken a few years would have sent bond prices from lows to much higher times and then since 1990 and particularly following the gfc we've gone from a, 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 a a higher interest rate environment to a low interest rate environment so bonds would have been lower in the last 10 years and cash would have been a lot lower in the last 10 years i'm guessing
2: yeah, and you would be right. I mean, I'm I don't right, have the 10-year right. averages, but I can see by the colour of the, the table here and the and the figures I'm looking at. So Australian bonds, if I look at, say, since 2010, the highest year was actually 2012. They got to 12.4. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, they've been, well, as low as 0.2 in, in 2017, 3.1 in 2018, and sort of in the fives and sixes most yeah, of the time. Yeah, okay. Right, yeah. yeah, okay. Okay, so the, the other part of this I thought was fascinating. Which uh, asset class do you think had the single best year return?
3: Uh, US equities. Yeah, again. Oh, 90, really? 1999? Oh, you're no, really close. 98, 98. Yeah, you got it. Any yeah. idea what
2: the return was? Is that year? Uh, and it was on the back of a really strong year in 97 as well.
3: Um, no, it'd, it'd be probably... 40% and above.
2: Yeah, you're right. 57 and a half was the highest one year return for any asset class in yeah. 1998. Yeah. Um, right. On the back of 41 and a half in 1997.
3: Yeah. Well, that, that's what you call a bubble. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, and it, and it, The leading probably happened earlier because 1994, it had a decline of around 8%. Then it hit 30% growth in 95, 13 and a half in 96, and then the 41 and a half and 57 and a half in. So and that's
3: leading into the dot com. That, that's the dot com boom. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, but it's had some... Yeah, so it, it is the most volatile because it's also had the biggest decline in a single year. Oh, no, it hasn't, actually. Biggest decline in a single I year. I would say
1: is uh, one of the property classes, Correct. maybe REITs. Australian-listed property trade. Yes. You reckon Australian? Yes. Not yeah. international? Yeah, okay. they they,
3: they, they, they got crated it. during the GFC. That's Correct. true, they did.
2: They had two years of appalling performance. 2008, they lost 36% and 2009, they lost 42%. Yeah, yeah. So that's... Phenomenal, uh, so fascinating that the uh, the volatility there. So, if you could pick, a, if you had the ability to to go back in time and look at it, there's windows here where you could say, oh, jeez, if I was just in that asset class for four or five years, I've, I've tripled my money. Yeah,
3: yeah, it's interesting. You you talk about those uh, listed property trusts being the worst performers. I mean, I've just pulled up a chart. Uh, of General Property Trust or GPT, just to get a bit of an indication as mm. to how that's performed. Yeah, because they're one of the biggest? Yeah, they're one of the biggest. They were trading at $19 during the GFC and today they, they got all the way down to $1. Whoa. And today they're only at $6. So wow. you, you are still down 10 years later, you're still down more than uh, two thirds of your money. Wow. wow.
2: And it's interesting because I look at – so in the back of that, I'm saying, okay, well, what was the lead up then? So prior to that decline in 2008, and this, obviously this table only starts in 1990, every year was positive, And I yep. would say the majority of them were double digits, including some in the 20s yeah. leading yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. And so and indicative bubbles. <laughs> yeah,
1: in indicative of a bubble. And what really happened was they had such a long track record of positive returns – therefore a perception of less risk and being safer, therefore a lot of the fund managers embraced borrowing. Yeah, that's right. And they borrowed more and more and more until the global financial crisis happened Mm. and they had those losses, but when the loss happens on a borrowed investment strategy, they get hammered and they have these instances of going from 19 uh, nineteen dollars to one dollar yeah. per yeah. unit. Well, they have to raise and raise capital, destroy shareholder value. Yeah, all all those things. And you you firstly can't borrow to those uh, extents uh, anymore. And there's not the appetite no. for borrowing to those extents. That's right. These days, if you want a geared strategy, you you can get some through the investment that you use, but you you got to do it more at the investor level. You have to borrow personally. Uh, to get a, a gearing strategy underway.
2: Yep. Uh, and that Australian listed property, so th- that data we just sh- uh, shared there was mirrored to a fair degree by the international listed property market as well. Yep. So the same two years were, were shocking declines and the other years were consistent growth. Yep. So fascinating yep. there. The reason I wanted to also touch on this table in, and why what we deem a, a decent investment return. Uh, Current wage rise growth or wage growth in Australia? Any idea what it is at the moment? Oh. Sub
1: two percent, about two percent, about two. So the last
2: quarter was point six, but it's been sort of between two and two point three percent. Yep. So it's really nothing.
1: Yeah, for a long time.
3: And and what's inflation about the same? Yeah. So I, I so looked that up as well. Inflation is currently one point six percent. Yeah. So there's there's been zero essentially wages are going up by inflation and there's been no real wealth creation.
1: Yeah. Yep. Not no real wealth creation and. Mm. Uh, and, and the measure of CPI is not always reflective of the actual cost of living. Yeah. Uh, the cost of living is, is is actually going up by maybe 3 or 4% a year. Yeah. Just look at private health insurance, school fees, groceries.
2: Yep. And then I also use as another point of reference the, the big four banks, even though they may not be the big four for too long, Louis, <laughs> uh, their current term deposit rates that they're offering on <coughs> a six-month $5,000 term deposit – between one and one point four percent. Yeah. So a pittance. So yeah. your wages aren't growing. your Costs are rising, and interest rates to get secured returns are minimal. So when you look at the averages across these asset classes, you know when we're talking roughly ten percent, it shows you've got to be invested if you want to be getting mm-hmm. ahead. Yeah, you got to be invested you've in Got to grow- be invested in growth assets. Yeah,
3: yeah. that's right. There, there is no alternative.
2: No, no. Money in the bank is actually losing for you.
1: It is, absolutely. It's going Mm. backwards. Thanks, Brett. That's some really good information.
0: Let's take another break. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email Info at ugc.net.au
1: Welcome back, listeners. Uh, Thanks for joining us. I'll kick it over to Joel now. Joel's got a a mixture of news, some uh, company level and some economy level. Yeah, thanks, Louis. Uh, It has been an interesting
3: uh, week or so in the financial markets. Um, I think we're seeing further signs that the IPO, the initial public offering market, is a little bit broken at the moment. Um, People have been really listening to you Well, yeah And, and I think that uh, WeWork was probably the, the one that, that broke it mm, um, right. And it's filtering through into other, uh, other financial markets uh, And other equity markets uh, Just this week We spoke about it uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago Ahmed Fuhur and his, um, yeah. and his big payday that he was due Should yeah. Latitude Financial Which is formerly really GE money um, oh, uh, should, right. should they list on the Australian Stock Exchange well, uh, we have found out yesterday that uh, that IPO has been pulled. Um, now, the the sellers of the IPO, or the the initial owners of the IPO, um, uh, KKR, Verdi Partners, and Deutsche Bank. So these are investment banks or mm. private equity firms that bought uh, Big stakes. GE money off GE back in two thousand and fifteen. Yeah. Um, and are obviously trying to monetize some of that return that they've made over the past few years by listing it on the ASX and getting some money out. Um, it's, uh, they failed to, to get this uh, IPO away at 11 times earnings. So at, at one stage, they were looking for about $2 to, $2 to $2.25. Uh, there was word on the street that uh, its bankers, Goldman Sachs, Macquarie, and UBS were then uh, trying to get as whatever they could close to $2.00. And then thinking that uh, that wasn't going to be enough, uh, lowering the price down to a dollar seventy eight. Wow.
2: Um,
3: uh, now this would have put the the shares uh, traded the, the shares would have traded eleven times profits, and also uh, put it on a five point eight percent dividend yield. So. I'm not 100% sure why this didn't get off, the, off the ground. That no, doesn't sound like
2: it th- especially compared to the other crap you're talking about. Yeah.
3: yeah, So the only thing I can sort of think of is that um, private equity have done a really good job of uh, burning a lot of investors when they've yeah. brought their IPOs to the yeah. market. And they're worried about that. And So you got to understand, how does an IPO, uh, how does private equity work? Well, private equity will typically take businesses, they'll try and restructure them in the private markets, away from analysts and shareholders that want returns on a daily basis. Uh, they'll then uh, look to sell that business, and and sometimes they'll do that through a, a private sale to another company. But most of the time, they'll generally try and list those businesses on a on the stock exchange uh, and get their money out. The problem with that model is that uh, quite a lot of the private equity firms have been um, found over the over years to essentially just. You know, put lipstick on a pig and mm. uh, and when the mar- when the uh, stock comes onto the market, uh, investors typically don't do very well in their IPOs yeah. once the stock actually floats. So there's a level of skepticism. and I think in some regards the the private equity uh, investors have done themselves a disservice uh, because this doesn't sound and doesn't seem like, A bad IPO. A bad IPO. I mean, it seems like it's priced fairly. It seems like the financials look pretty good. Mm. There's perhaps some questions around and maybe it's business model late into the cycle given that it tends to deal in lower credit, uh, lower credit worthy, you know, Harvey Norman type, you know, credit Mm -hmm. cards and these types of things. Um... I do have a friend of mine who is a broker up at Ord manette who uh, talked about how Armoured came in and tried to dress this business up as the next Afterpay and the next Zip, when really it's not. It's 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 a finance company that uh, provides you know sort of uh, loans for consumer finance goods, uh, big, bigger ticket items that actually do have some some uh, more substantial credit risk than just lending people a couple of hundred bucks like mm, Afterpay yeah. do. So um, interesting. I, I think that uh, we're seeing signs that the IPO market is busted for the time being. Um, Joel, it
1: won't last. But um, mm. you're but a lover of capitalism and a defender of capitalism. But are you saying that capitalism's broken? No, I'm
3: saying that uh, that the IPO market is is a little bit broken for the time being. I was just going to prod
1: you on that, <laughs> trying Frac- to poke the bear.
2: Fractured, maybe not totally broken. Oh well, okay.
1: Far yeah. out, God. Work right. I mean,
2: Yeah, <laughs> God, well, we're Hammering Joel. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> but I agree. Well, I can still remember when was it KKR or one of the others? They did the Maya float when they took it private, brought it back, and that tanked for the next two or three years. Yeah,
1: Maya mm. was a pig, so and they it was, cleaned yep. out as soon so as was it Qantas listed. wasn't it?
3: Dick Smith? Uh, yeah, no, Dick Qu- Smith. Qu- was. Qantas wasn't. Uh, it, Qantas was was uh, there was a play oh, for Qantas that's by right. Alco but Equity Finance back just prior to the GFC, and then Alco went bankrupt. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you know you got Dick Smith that went that went bust after a, a private equity IPO. Mm. You've had uh, what was the other one that you said, Brett? The well, Meyer's Meyer, yeah, Meyer, yeah. Was it JB as well? No, no, no. no JB been there was another one. I there, there was another one. Yeah. I can't remember. But
2: I, I remember hearing a story when the Meyer one floated that the ATO were chasing them because the day it listed, there was no escrow or, or any period. So the private equity firms behind it just listed. Liquidated, got all their money, yeah. and just took took it offshore and ran away. Well, I think this was one right of the away. other.
3: This is one of the other issues with the uh, latitude financial IPO was that um, KKR and, and Verdi and uh, Deutsche Bank were were going to continue to remain substantial shareholders. So that was going to create a fairly decent overhang of the stock and the share mm. price over time. Um, so anyway, I, I, I'm suspecting that Ahmed Fahur doesn't get his big payday. Oh. Um, or it's so, deferred until not he can get And this is the second time that Latitude has tried to float in the last two oh. years. So mm. I don't know where this leaves uh, yeah. Latitude going forward and whether or not they're ever actually going to be able to float.
2: So I wonder hmm. why the market doesn't like them.
3: I, it's it's that PE. I'm sure it's yeah, the private it's equity be that. side. Yep. I'm sure it's the private equity side. I mean, we've seen so many times private equity get in. They strip the company full of assets. They load it up with debt. Mm-hmm. They pay themselves big dividends. Yeah. And then they try and you know jazz up, pump up. The Pump up profits in the short yeah. term, and yeah. then purely get the listing figure. Yep, and then all of a sudden, the the profits end up carving away because a lot of the measures that they do are just short term, mm. you know, um, cost cuts that yeah. ultimately under Yeah, they underinvest in the business in order to juice the the, com- the profits mm. up in the short term, but then that has a detrimental effect on yeah. the company's longer term operational um, ability. So
2: they, they buy an old bomb of a car, they give it a paint job and and you know some petrol and oil so it runs. Yep. and then flog it and <laughs> run away. That, that's exactly yeah. right. <laughs>
3: Wow so um, but look it's not all bad news in the equity markets um, we've uh, we've seen uh, corporate earnings expectations, particularly out of the United States, are actually continuing to rise over the next 12 months. So if we're expecting uh, a recession, it's odd that the bottom-up analysts that are doing all of the analysis on individual stocks and listening to what corporate executives are actually saying and trying to build in expectations around what their companies that they're covering will generate going forward um, are actually increasing earnings expectations for the next 12 months. So over the from this point going forward uh, so to October of next year analysts in the US are expecting corporate profits to rise by nine point one eight percent and for the calendar year to rise by eleven point two percent and that has been steadily increasing all the way through 2019 really? where analysts have been increasing it from around six mm-hmm. percent up to seven to eight to nine and now it's now it's heading and trending towards double-digit earnings growth over the next 12 months <laughs> so once again that's Uh, it's not consistent with what we would typically see if we're expecting the US economy and the global Hmm. economy to head into a recession. Uh, Another little tidbit as well. um, How's this for a, uh, a, a change in business? So everyone knows the company Hooters? Yes, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Hooters, the restaurants. Um, I know it well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) From a long time ago. So, Chanticleer Holdings, who is the parent company of the Hooters franchise. Now, this stock was trading at around about $50 a little over um, eight years ago. If I just bring up the ticker here. So, uh, no, it's not Grub it is Berg. Okay, so if we go back to uh, 2000 and, uh, 2014, the stock was trading at uh, $55, got to a high of $55, and it's now trading below $1. Whoa. So the stock is and the company is really struggling. Yeah. But a uh, good thing, though, management have a plan. They were so successful at running a business in burgers that now they believe they're going to be successful in doing cancer research. What? Oh, <laughs> Give me a break, hey? different. Give me a break. Oh, that's crazy. So the management of uh Chanticleer, excuse me, the management of Holdings have decided that what they will do is merge with Sonnet Biotherapeutics. Uh, they will essentially sell off the businesses of Hooters or close the close the restaurants down. And uh, they will back in the business of Sonnet Biotherapeutics, which is cancer research. Uh, biotech uh, into Chanticleer Holdings and essentially dump the business of running uh, wow. Hooters restaurants. What so a that, strange change! Have in the Hooters direction.
2: restaurants just fallen out of favour because of the times <sighs> competition. They just people aren't going there.
3: Maybe they're not investing in
2: their
1: staff enough.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know.
2: yeah. I don't know. I don't or know. Or <laughs> maybe they're
1: specialising in breast cancer research. Yeah. Potentially,
3: potentially, uh, and just uh, just very quickly before I wrap up my segment, um, we were doing uh, we're doing a lot of screening at the moment. I mean, I I, I've been slamming the table that this market uh, has the potential to rip and rip significantly higher. And Joel, you've you've doubled your
2: ability to screen with a new person.
3: Yes, yeah, we we uh, we have an extra uh, yeah, we've got an extra analyst who's joined the team, Hugh, and we've also got uh, an associate analyst joining the team on Monday, uh, Elaine. So we welcome them on board. But um, we have been screening and doing a, a ton of screens on the market at the moment, and I've got to tell you, the Chinese stock market, the the Shanghai Composite, uh, and the number of stocks that are setting up the way that we would want them to set up before they break out mm. has been um, uh, at a level that I haven't seen out of any market so far. Um, so we are doing some deep dive research into the Chinese market. We might actually be making a couple of recommendations on specific Chinese listed stocks in the next, uh, in the next week or two. Uh, once we finish that due diligence phase.
2: Uh, are there any in the portfolio at the moment, Chinese listed?
3: We have, uh, off the top of my head, we do have one. I'm just trying to figure out was which it one it is. No, hang on Let me pull up Tencent Music portfolio. is in there, I'm sure. Um, uh, are they yeah, Tencent Music. So yeah. that's right. We've got Tencent Music, which is a, uh, like their version of Spotify. Yeah. Uh, but we might be... But that's listed on the US stock market. Ah, right. Okay, so... Um, we have a number of companies that aren't U.S. companies that are listed mm. on the U.S. stock market um, that uh, that we have in the portfolios. But uh, we're looking at probably adding at least one and possibly even two Chinese companies mm. to the portfolio that are actually listed. In the Chinese stock market, exciting times. Um, and uh, and 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 that market looks very very attractive right now. And I think what's starting to happen uh, is with this movement that China and Trump are starting to get closer to uh, forming a longer term deal. Uh, last week we had uh, China and Trump had agreed to a partial deal, um, or China and the US had agreed to a uh, partial deal on their trade. Issues where China's agreed to to buy a lot more of the agricultural products out of the US, and the US has agreed not to increase tariffs as as were planned in the coming months, as well as a few other little issues. But um, the market appears to be pricing in the US stock market, the Australian stock market, European stock market, Chinese stock market um, appears to be pricing in uh, the likelihood that a resolution in this trade war that has been going on for about 18 months or so is coming towards an end and the markets are looking ready to rip higher if that happens so um watch this
1: space that is very interesting you didn't hear it from a taxi driver yeah, yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first yep, agreed. <clears throat> very good well thanks joel let's move on to our Our that. favourite segment. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Uh, who's got what for us today?
2: Well, I've got one I think most of us could relate to. And in fact, I've got good secondhand experience of this. I had a friend that did something very similar. It was quite funny at the time. Have you ever misplaced your car in a car park and taken a while to find it?
1: I uh, know the experience. Yeah. Oh, once. Yeah. once. Yes, happened to be once. So we can probably once.
2: relate. Well, an unlucky UK team. He drove 160 kilometres to a music festival. <sighs> and he got... Close to, he got within 10 kilometres of where the festival was, and there was not going to be any further parking or, or ability to get closer. So he parked in a in a side street in Bristol uh, and caught a taxi. Yeah, had a great event for however long he was there. Decided to go back, couldn't find his car. Ended up going all the, finding a transport all the way back home. Another 160 kilometre journey. And a week or two later, he's still searching for that car. You're oh, joking! <laughs> no, <to be> serious. <gasps> didn't take a photo. Didn't GPS. It was oh, just too wow. excited. Just parked the car and, and jumped in a taxi and took off and forgot to make note of what it was. <laughs> so it's a foreign city. Or I want to say foreign city. It's a strange city. Doesn't know his way around. Doesn't recognise any streets. So doesn't know where it is.
3: <laughs> oh, Dude, where's my car? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh,
1: jeez, that's crazy. Uh, in Australia, we have lots of different anim- uh, dangerous animals. In one part of the world, it appears a squirrel is the most dangerous animal. (laughs) Uh, There was a lady in Pittsburgh who went to drive her car and noticed a burning smell uh, coming from the car early on in the journey. So she opened up the hood of her car and found that a squirrel... Had been uh, storing nuts. Ah, there you you go.
2: Is is that how he gets them roasted? Nuts. That's right.
1: (laughs) Nuts and bits of grass. But the the hood was absolutely full of it. I've seen a photo of uh, on the internet, and it's just completely full of nuts. There was about um, two hundred nuts that came out uh, just by opening up. The, the hood of the car oh. and then they actually had to remove the, the, the engine casing and another 50 nuts fell out of that
2: wow geez <laughs> done well then stockpiled <laughs> it's a good stockpile <laughs> for winter
3: uh, well, we've had, uh, we've had um, the climate change protesters in Melbourne recently and all around most of the major cities. And uh, the world, and Extinction the world. Rebellion. Yeah. Ex- extinction Rebellion, yeah. Well, uh, you might be interested to know that uh, the Intergovernmental Council on Climate Change is very famous for where all of the politicians who are coming up with policies around how to make the world a, a much less carbon emission a uh, uh, place to live mm-hmm. uh, well uh, th- between 1300 and 1700 private jets are taken every year by these politicians <laughs> yeah. to go to <laughs> the the uh, intergovernmental climate change council in Davos
1: you cannot be serious
3: so I'm just wondering how That'd serious yeah, come on um, come on yes. so on average it's been between over the last five years anywhere between 1300 and 1700 private jets to attend that one conference. Mm,
1: (laughs) Jeez. There you go. Thanks for that, Joel. I stuck it to you on capitalism. (laughs) You stick it to me on environmentalists Uh, taking private jets. Fair enough. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate you being with us, and we'll catch you again next week. Thanks, Louis. Thanks a lot
0: broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to The Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode, we'll help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now here's your host, Stephanie Sumner.